Well, good morning again, and happy Thanksgiving again. Now, we're starting a series on the book of Jonah over the next three and four weeks. We talked about Jonah last week uh, when we talked about the last installment of our Mission and Vision Core Values, a series on Back to the Basics. But we're going to continue on in the book of Jonah. So we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter uh, 2, verse 10, to Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. But before we get there, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, Several men were in the locker room at a local golf club, and a cell phone on the bench rings, and a man picks it up, and he hits the function for the, uh, the hands-free speaker function so everybody can hear. And all the men in the room are listening to the conversation. And the man answers, he says, hello. And on the other line is, hi, honey, it's me. Are you still at the golf club? And the man says, yes. And the woman said, listen, I'm at the shops right now, and I have found this beautiful leather jacket. It's about $2,000. Can I buy it? And he says, well, yes, go ahead. If you like it that much, go ahead. And she says, well, I also stopped by the Lexus dealer on the way here. And uh, I found uh, the new car that I really want. And he said, well, how much is it? And she said, well, about $90,000. And he says, well, at that price, I want all the options. And she says, great. And she said, oh, by the way, one more thing. I was talking to Jane this morning in the house that we were looking at last year's back on the market, and they only want $980,000 for it. And the man says, well, then make an offer of $900,000, and, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll take it, but uh, if they don't, we'll just, you know, we'll we'll also give the other $80,000 because obviously it's something you really want. And the woman says, okay. She says, I love you so much. And he says, yes, I love you too. Bye. The man hangs up. And the other men in the locker room are just staring at him in absolute astonishment. And their mouths are wide open. He turns to them and he says, anyone know who owns this phone? (laughs) You're sicker than I am. Let's stand together, and that has nothing to do with today's sermon. I just want you to know. That's for free. We're looking at Jonah, and we're reading chapter 2, verse 10, and we're reading on through to 3, verse 10. And I am reading the uh, blue, and uh, that's not supposed to happen. Can you fence that for me uh, one slide, please? Thanks. Yeah, this is really good. Yeah, that's really good. Can you give me slide two, uh, Charles, please? Yes? No, there we are. Ha! Thank you, sir. Uh, It's not slide two. That is slide one. Here we go. Thank you. And we're good. And the Lord spoke to the fish. Some of you fishermen wish that. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land.
And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are grateful and thankful for the way in which you have shown your love to us so extravagantly and generously in Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the Holy Spirit who takes everything that you have accomplished in Christ and makes it available in our lives. And so we ask today, you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, but particularly when we leave this place and go out into our city, our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, the places where we work and receive our education, the places where we get our services, that we may live out what it means to be followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, and that we would do that in tangible, meaningful ways. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, the first thing that we're told in our text this morning is that the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Jonah reminds me of the little boy who was walking beside the beach or on the beach, and he noticed a dead seagull. And so he went back and got his mother, pulled her out of her chair, and brought her over and showed her the dead seagull. And, and he said to his mom, what happened? And the mom said, well, it looks like the bird died and went to heaven. The little boy looked at the lifeless seagull there on the beach and paused for a moment and then asked, and then God threw him back? Jonah despite his best efforts, arrives at Nineveh, beached and bleached. And that reminds us of Jonah's humanity. Now, we all know the story very well. If, we, like, if you are like me, growing up in Sunday school, I can still recall the flannel graph presentations. 
But even people who did not grow up in Sunday school knows about Jonah and the whale because Jonah and the whale has actually inspired such stories as Disney's Pinocchio and, of course, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I told you last week that Jonah is everyone's favorite. Kids love it. And as adults, we are intrigued and we are fascinated by it. And here's one of the reasons why I think that we as adults are still fascinated with and still intrigued with the story of Jonah because we identify with Jonah. We see ourselves in him and we understand that a Jonah lurks in every human heart, yours and mine. Now, there's something timelessly gripping about the Jonah story. As we follow along, we sort of look, if you will, in the mirror. And when we look in the mirror of Jonah's story, we don't always like what we see there. Some of us have at some point run away from God and his directives in our lives. And we have run back to God when we've had times of need. Many of us know the delight and the joy of running with God. And many of us know the pain of running ahead of God and taking matters into our own hands. But there's another reason I think that we are fascinated and intrigued as adults with Jonah. And it's this, Jonah is real. Jonah has faults and failures and flaws. Jonah is human. And this is one of the reasons why I like Jonah. Jonah takes the pressure off because Jonah is the real deal. Now, Eugene Peterson, I think it is, that made this observation. He said this, that we live in a very superficial world. We live in a world, he says, that is becoming increasingly plastic. He says, I think about Disney and the world that they, the city that they have created in Florida, and what's interesting about it is that it's not real. None of it is real. It's plastic. He says, we have plastic money. What he didn't know is that we literally do in Canada, but he was referring to credit cards. We have plastic pills and we have plastic people, people who leave us with the impression that they have it all together. But of course, we know the difference. We know that none of us in this room and nobody watching online and nobody has it all together. And Peterson says, he goes on and talks about how plastic we are becoming even as Christians. We put forward our best foot, we put on our best faces, our best selves, we put on our masks, and we all know what I'm talking about. We come to church, and even though we're mad at with our spouses and we're furious with our children, nobody would ever know. And we all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it, all of us. We're going to call this glamour 
Christianity or Christian glamour or church glamour. Now, put your seatbelt on for a moment. Peterson doesn't call this. I'm dialing it down a tone. He calls this ecclesiastical pornography, where everything is airbrushed and where everyone is a glamour shot. But we all know it's not real. We all know that the real world is not like this, that we are not like this. We all know that we're not being real. But Jonah is real. Jonah is not perfect, not by a long shot. Jonah is not the ideal person. Matter of fact, Jonah is not the ideal anything. But he is the person that God called and sent. And you and I, we are the persons that God has invited into a relationship with him in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And he calls us and he has sent us as imperfect and messed up as we all are. Now, the second thing we notice is this. It says in verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 3, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, originally, we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. But that statement, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, sets the tone for our entire chapter and the tone for this entire message this morning and the tone for our entire time here today, that the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time First of all, it tells us something about God. That the God that we serve is the God of second chances. The hope of the gospel is that there is always the possibility of a new beginning. The good news of Jesus Christ is that there is always the possibility of a fresh start. The good news of Jonah is that there is the possibility of second chances. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time because he didn't really get it the first time. But Jonah got a second chance. Now, think about your life for a moment, as I think about mine, would we not all love a second chance at something? When our Scott, Pastor Scott, was around 11 or 12, he came to me one day and he said this, he said, Dad, don't you wish that there was an undo button in life. Now, I thought to myself, first of all, on the one hand, 
It's incredibly insightful for 11 and 12-year-old to understand that. But on the other hand, is it not sad that even at the ages of 11 and 12 that he understands the need for a second chance? I think we all wish at times that we had a second chance chance. If only I had another chance. A decision we made that we wish we could do over. An action that we took that we wish we could change. A word that we said, a word that was spoken that we wish we could undo. A second chance with someone or something. And I suppose all of us have some regret. And some of us have a lot of regret. I know that Rick Coster of Oakville has some regret and wishes that he had a second chance. In the mid-1980s, he invented a flotation device to help swimmers. And every pool that you have ever seen or ever been in, you have seen these. Stores have not been able to keep adequate stock since they were massively released in 1994. Kids Power Inc. of Brentwood, Tennessee, has made fun noodles, a national phenomenon, and in the process have amassed a small fortune. But Rick Coster has not enjoyed the tremendous success of his invention. He failed to apply for the patent for his invention, and he wasn't interested in marketing it. But he wishes now that he had a second chance. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people wish they had a second chance. Even the late Billy Graham. Billy Graham tells the story of a conversation that he had in the early 60s with John F. Kennedy, JFK. Shortly after he was elected president, And Graham writes, on the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car and he turned to me and he asked, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? And Graham said, I most certainly do. Well, does my church believe it? Kennedy asked. Well, Graham said they have it in their creeds, but they don't preach it. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. And Graham said, I explain what the Bible says about the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation, and that he died on the cross and rising from the dead and then promising that he would come back again. And then only, I said, will we have permanent world peace. Very interesting JFK said, turning away, we'll have to talk more about that someday, and he drove on. 
Graham says several years later, the two of them met again at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. Graham remembers, I had the flu. And after I gave my short talk and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel to his car together, as was our custom, and at the curb. He turned to me and asked, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to see you for a minute. Mr. President, I've got a fever. Graham protested. Not only am I weak, but I don't want to give you this thing. Could we talk some other time? Graham said it was a cold, snowy day, and I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat, and graciously, John F. K. said, of course. But the two would never meet again. JFK would be shot dead that year. And kind Graham comments, his hesitation, his hesitation at the car door, and his request haunts me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? And Graham says, it was an irrevocable moment. Not everyone gets a second chance. And not everyone is guaranteed a second chance. But Jonah did. And so did Nineveh. And so do you and I today. The third thing that we notice in the text is in verse 4 when the word of the Lord comes to Nehemiah and then finally in verse 4 it says this, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. I like the way that the King James translates this verse, verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into, enter into, the city, a day's journey. He didn't stand on the edge and preach at them. He entered into. He entered into where they lived their lives. He heard what they said. He smelled their cooking. He picked up their idioms and their slang. He entered into it. But what's interesting here is that this is where Jonah is just like God. And the ultimate entering in, of course, is God's entering in. That God did not and God does not stand on the periphery. God did not and does not hold himself at a distance from us, from me and you. God came near, as Max Licato once said, in the person of Jesus Christ. He entered into our world. Peterson said in the message that God became flesh and moved into our neighborhood or moved into the neighborhood, a neighborhood that was totally foreign to him. And you and I, us, Glad Tidings Church, we are called, invited, and sent 
to enter into. Did you know, and I didn't realize this until this week, that Nineveh at its peak, its population was 175,000 people, about the population of the greater city of Sudbury. And in this town, in this city, you and I, it is ours to enter in for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. And then there's this. And verse 4 says, And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. Jonah entered into Nineveh, and when he opened his mouth, he did not accuse them of being evil. He called their future into question. Now, our future, yours, mine, ours, our future is that aspect of time that is of great concern to us. There is something intrinsic built in to all of us human beings that causes us to be intrigued about the future, but intrigued particularly about our future. And there are probably many reasons for that, but here's one. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, And God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into men's and women's hearts. Eternity is in our hearts. Eternity is in your heart. Eternity is in my heart. That's one of the reasons why we are intrigued about the future and about our particular future. I love what somebody said, and I don't know who. They said that in every Christian, there is a built-in, low-grade homesickness, a longing to return to God, to return to our source from which we've come. Yet 40 days... And Nineveh shall be overthrown is the far thunder of Bible prophecy. That means that history generally is heading somewhere and your history and their history specifically is headed in a specific direction. And when our future is called into question, there is a certain urgency that comes with emergency. Yet 40 days is an incubator. It's a womb. It's a time of reflection and contemplation. Yet 40 days is a time to set our life in order. Yet 40 days in Noah's ark was the time it took to cleanse centuries of moral pollution. Yet 40 days of Elijah on the run set him free from the dangerous illusions of Jezebel into the revelation of God. And yet 40 days for Jesus 
was a probing of motive and intent. It clarified the ways in which God works salvation. And then finally, yet 40 days after Jesus' resurrection was enough to verify the new normal that was at work in the kingdom of God. Yet 40 days. And Nineveh will be overthrown is not a word of doom. It's a word of hope. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will will be overthrown does not have to be a word of disaster and tragedy. It can be one of invitation. Another way of life is possible. A way of faith in God. That change was and change is possible. And that's exactly what we see in our text, don't we? Change. We notice, first of all, what the people of Nineveh did. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They repented. And then we notice what their king did. And the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in ashes. Now, pay attention. Pay attention. Notice what he did. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He put on sackcloth. And he sat down in ashes. That's exactly what our king did. That's what Jesus did. Philippians says these words, And though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want you to look at it this way. I want to compare what the king of Nineveh did and our king, the king of kings, did. Let me show it to you this way. First of all, he arose from his throne. That's what the king of Nineveh did. And the Bible says that Jesus did the same thing, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then the king of Nineveh took off his royal robes. And the Bible tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And the king of Nineveh then put on sackcloth. And the Bible tells us about our king. He humbled, being found in human form. He humbled himself. He took on human flesh. And then finally the king of Nineveh sat down in ashes. And the Bible tells us that our king, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, this was Jesus' ashes. And Philippians says, 
having this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. A posture of humility and humiliation. It was the poet Marganata Lesky, shortly before dying, said this. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. But the poet was wrong. God in Jesus Christ forgives all who ask. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And we're going to prepare for communion. And this morning on this Thanksgiving, I thought it would be appropriate for us to come down out of our seats and take the bread and dip it in the juice that represents the blood of our Lord. And you can receive communion there at the table, or you can take it in your hand and the palm of your hand and bring it back to your chair. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you do it. But with our eyes closed for just a moment, just a moment. Jonah got a second chance. And so did Nineveh. And so do you and I in this room right now. And all of those watching online. We get a second chance. If you have never said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, this is your chance to say yes. And if we have said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness, and there's a knock in our conscience... And there's something that we now need to get right, and this is a second chance where we can make it right. Because here's the deal. The hope of the gospel is that there is always the possibility of a fresh start. The hope of the gospel is that there is always the possibility of a new beginning. And the hope of Jonah is that there is the possibility of a second chance. Because God, the God of our, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God of the second chance. So all around the room, those watching online, if you have never said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, this is your moment to say yes. I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did, and he did it for me. I believe. And today I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes. For those of us who are Christians, I love the words of Jesus when he is about to wash the 
disciples' feet, of course, and Peter, being Peter, says, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Peter, Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And of course, Peter, being Peter, says, well, Lord, not just my feet, then in that case, my whole body. And, and Jesus says, those who have been clean do not need a bath. They just need their feet washed because we are as they used to say a long time ago, that we have feet of clay and we walk in a dusty, dirty world. And maybe this morning, you need to have your feet washed. Maybe this morning, you need to have your mind washed. Your hands. Whatever it is, your mouth. Whatever it is. <clears throat> but Christians, this is no reason not to partake in communion. Because this is the craziest thing. Forgiveness is readily available, and all we have to say is, Lord, I'm sorry. I fall upon your name again, and I ask that your blood would cover me one more time and exchange my guilt and shame for your peace. There's no reason why any Christian should not take communion today. And even if you've had a quarrel with your spouse or you were furious with your kids or you yelled at the guy who cut you off on the way to church, all you got to do is say, Lord, I'm going to put that on hold, but when I'm done here today, I'm going to go back to my wife, I'm going to go or my husband, I'm going to go back to my children or children or parents. And the next driver that cuts me off, I'm going to be a little bit more humble and gracious. Does that make sense? Father, this is your table. This is the Lord's table. This is not glad tidings table. <clears throat> this is not a Pentecostal table. This is your table. <clears throat> and anyone who is your child, your son, your daughter, is welcome to this table. And so, Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.